You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system, up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Okay, let's do some quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. That's obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. To reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. Here's the thing. Information is power. Information is money. Literally, the currency of today's world of, of entrepreneurship is information. And if you could bring all of the, your, the information about your business into one dashboard, this is incredibly valuable. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of the truth about your business. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite and you're improving efficiency by bringing all of your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. This is so valuable. You just hit a button and you can see all the information about your business instead of having to like call five different departments and get all these emails and put it all together and make sense of it. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. Jay tricked me. So as you know, Jay Yao is the producer of this podcast. And we were just talking casually. And he asked me about all the different things. I've been obsessed with a lot of different things ever since I was a little kid. And kind of this power of obsession has driven my entire life for better or for worse. Sometimes for better, sometimes for worse. And we're just casually talking about it. And then I realized he's recording. and. So we made an episode about the power of obsession. And you kind of hear in the beginning, I didn't really want to do an episode on it, but then I realized, oh, this has been an interesting thing for me. And this aspect, this power of obsession has overall very positively affected my life. So here we go, the power of obsession. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. You know what's really interesting yesterday when you go on that, that guy's uh, David Shan's show? Yeah. That I never really thought about is that the power of obsessions. 
right? The power of subscription because you were so obsessed with so many different things, one at a time, does yeah. that have all this interesting adventure it, it makes that me, kick you into a quest? Yeah, like, like for instance, I mentioned how when I was six years old, I was obsessed with Greek mythology. I've never read a book on Greek mythology since I was six years old, but I remember everything because obsession helps the memory too. Yeah, wait, so, so I'm just curious, six years old, yeah. When do you start reading? I don't know, when I was three hey, or four. As far as you can remember. Three yeah. Or four, oh my God. And then you already start reading like Greek mythology and stuff like that. Six yeah, years I had old? to get a special library card to take books out of the adult section. How? Like, I, okay, I'm just curious. I'm, this is, I'm just totally curious, right? Like, I don't know if this is going to make it into the podcast or whatever. But I'm just curious. How, did, how, how does six years old... You look at something and you're like, I'm gonna obsess with this Greek mythology. Like what like do you remember the start of it? Well, I didn't decide to be obsessed. I just I don't know, it seemed like comic books but better because uh. these were stories of uh, that had lasted for hundreds or even thousands of years about these gods. So it was almost like they were real. They you know, I didn't know I was six years old, I didn't really understand what religion was at a deeper level, you know, how, you know, religion is designed to basically control the population in various ways. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying, I'm not saying faith is bad. Like faith could be a good thing in, in, about religion and, and religion could be very powerful in a positive way. But often in many historical periods, religion was used to con control the masses. I'm essentially quoting Karl Marx here, but the stories are beautiful. Like it's like Joseph Campbell's, you know, the hero's journey. Like every one of these mythologies all have a creation story. They have like a God that rules all the other gods. Sometimes they get angry. Sometimes they fall in love. Sometimes they, um, and they all have like superpowers because they're better than mortals. And there's, and there's amazing stories that are supposed to, um, you know, teach people truths of life. And that's kind of how, you know, information would get transmitted from one generation to the next. Like, oh, why does the sun go down at night and come up in the morning? Well, there's a God named Apollo who rides a chariot, who, you know, brings the sun around the world every day, single day. So, and so that's how this, that was like science then. And so this, that's how this right. science gets passed down from one generation to the next. And, you know, their battles, for instance, again, in Greek mythology, uh, Aphrodite, who was supposedly the most beautiful goddess, uh, you know, Zeus, the, the king of the gods, wanted her to be married. So he, he, he wanted to award Hephaestus. So Hephaestus was, was a god who basically made all the weapons of the other gods. So he was like, a, he was like the god of blacksmiths Blacksmith, and, and, wep right. and weaponry. But he was very ugly. He was hideous, and Zeus wanted to award uh, or reward Hephaestus for all the good he had done. All the other gods were making all of their weapons. Like he made Zeus's lightning bolts, for instance, and so he married Aphrodite to Hephaestus. But meanwhile, uh, Aphrodite was attracted to Ares, the god of war, right. and Hephaestus found out. And Hephaestus was a big guy, and Ares, the god of war, was ironically a coward. And so, the, the so just the little lesson there is that often the most warmongering 
people are cowardly at heart. So it's kind of a moral lesson there. But anyway, uh, Aphrodite and Ares started having this affair. Hephaestus found out, beat the living crap out of Ares. Ares complained to Zeus, and Zeus had to punish Hephaestus. So he threw Hephaestus down to earth for a year, and he had to live like a human for a year. And imagine then, that leads to many stories. Like imagine you could write a novel now. What happened to Hephaestus? the the year he was was a a, a normal human so right so like there's all, there's all sorts of stories and that's why you have all these stories even now written uh, like like all these young adult novels are about the greek gods on like the children of the greek gods that are on earth right now and you know what's that called the percy uh percy jackson yeah percy jackson um right is like some it, ch- child of of uh poseidon the god of the ocean or right. something like that Right. So he, he essentially he's a titan, right? That's what they call the titans or demigod. Oh yeah. So the titans, and again, all I, all of this is from books I read when I was six years old. I haven't read a single book about Greek mythology since I was six years old, but I was obsessed. So I read everything I could find. So the titans are kind of like the the aunts, uncles, and parents of the gods that ended up being the real Greek gods. So there was a god, Cronus, the, the head titan, the right. oldest titan was named Cronus, and he was the ruler of all the gods. And there was a prophecy told to him that one of his children was going to kill him and become the king of the gods. So every time his wife had a child, he ate the baby. And, oh my God. And one time... The mother, I forgot what her name was, his wife or whatever, she got sick of, you're eating all my babies. <laughs> so she took, when when she was giving birth this one time, the last time, she uh, quickly, the, the midwife, uh, she, she gave the baby to the midwife. The midwife, you know, hid the baby. This was the baby called Zeus. And instead she made like a fake baby, like out of rock. And Cronus ate that baby instead of Zeus. So Zeus grows up and the mom's like, hey, get your brothers and sisters back. And so Zeus kills Cronus, his father, and, uh, you know, gets his brothers. uh, Their brothers and sisters are still alive. They're just in Cronus's stomach. So he gets uh, all his brothers and sisters back. And then Zeus becomes the king of the gods. Uh, and all his brothers and sisters, like Poseidon and Hephaestus. I didn't, I didn't know. I didn't know he has a sister. Oh yeah, uh, Zeus. Yeah, I think Demeter is his sister. I mean, I think he married his sister. Uh, forgot what her name is. See, I don't. I don't. Incest going on. Hmm? Yeah, exactly. Tons of incest going on. And and then he had children too. So like Hermes is his child. Right. Uh, Athena. So Athena was a child. She was born from his brain. So that's why she's right. like the wisest of the gods. Yeah. She's supposed to be the, the goddess of wisdom, right? Or yeah. something like that. And Apollo and Artemis are his children. Yeah. Um, and they're like twins. So Artemis is the moon. Apollo's uh, the sun. He's the sun. And yeah. Artemis is sort of the first example of lesbians in uh, uh, kind of mythological history. Uh, and she was also the goddess of the hunt. 
And no, I, I didn't know that. So a lot of these gods also are similar in other countries. So like, you know, the equivalent of Zeus in Norway is sort of like a combination between Odin and Thor. And the equivalent of Hermes in Norse mythology would be Loki. And so there's kind of like little comparisons and and uh, throughout all of these uh, different religions. But I was obsessed. So I would read all about Greek mythology, yeah. Egyptian mythology, Norse mythology, Hindu mythology. So I would, uh, and then again, this is all when I was six, I would trade my Superman comic books with my friends who were from India who had like these comic books called Armor Chitra Kata. And so it would be like all the Hindu gods. So the Mahabharata would be in there, the Bhagavad Gita, uh, but just in comic book form. And so I would read about all the Hindu gods in this these very popular comic books in India. And so six years old, that's crazy. Also, but, I mean, I, I don't mean to like uh, break the flow, but I, I have one conspiracy theory about all this mythology. Tell me. I think Greek mythology essentially it's alien. Right? Oh yeah, why do you think about it, right? So you're saying you're like, saying Greek mythology and probably all these mythologies are Asian. So why do you think that? Oh no, Asian, not Asian, alien. Alien. Oh, because of the idea <laughs> that the aliens possibly cloned an alien and left a human here on Earth, but they're like the gods. Right. They're they're what we think of as the gods. Like like who built the pyramids? Well, there were a bunch of gods around. You know, it's an interesting right. fact that we're closer in time to Cleopatra than Cleopatra is to the making of the pyramids. So yep. the pyramids are so far back. We just really have no idea how they were made, who made them. I mean, what, yeah. what do we discover that like each block in the pyramids is two tons and comes from, you know, a hundred miles away from where the pyramids are. Like how do they carry them there? Yeah. And, and also the, the, the Sphinx, right? I don't know if you heard about this, the Sphinx, if you look at it, the human's head, it's an, uh, an, in, uh, how do you call it? It's not proportionate. So what happened is maybe before it was actually way larger, and then they 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 cut it down and become and make it into like a human head, you know. Uh, but but yeah. So uh, and also uh, like if you think about the Greek mythology and stuff like that, right? You have a blacksmith that make Zeus weapon, like a thunder weapon, thunder, like magic sort of. Sort of sci-fi, if you thought about it, if you think about it. Yeah, right? yeah. Well, mythology was kind of like the science fiction of those times. And by the way, some of these religions still exist, like Hinduism still yeah. exists. And you could argue the Bible is a form of mythology. Uh, you know, for instance, why does Christianity have angels and saints? Well, it's because Roman mythology had all these gods, and they wanted to convince the Roman Empire to not persecute Christians. So they kind of said, oh, we're similar to Roman gods. It's just like, you know, here's the angel Michael and the angel Gabriel, and they have different powers. And there was a war between the good gods and the bad gods, you know, just like in Roman mythology. And, uh, you know, it's it's all... It's all related. Yeah, it's all, it's, it's all, like it's all related because... You know, and, and really, probably the source of a lot of religions, like the reason why, why is it, why is Hinduism... There's a God of the sun, there's a, a God of wisdom, there's a God of this, a God of that. And they're all kind of represented in Greek mythology. A lot of theory is that Alexander the Great, when he was invading all these different area, countries all the way down to India, he kind of brought Greek mythology with him. So, you know, in India, kind of the 
regular gods sort of were more Northern India where Alexander the Great was conquering and more Southern India, at least at that time, this is like in 400 BC, Southern India was more like Brahma, Shiva, Vishnu. It's almost like right. two different mythologies, but they, they work uh, together. But Brahma, Vishnu, Shiva were, were much more powerful than like the regular gods. So Indra, who was the king of the gods in Hinduism is more like Zeus and Brahma, Vishnu, Shiva are more like this trinity of, of gods that are, are much more powerful. Right. That's like, wasn't, isn't Shiva, it's like the god of destruction or something like that? Yeah. So, so Brahma basically created the universe. So Brahma is right. almost like this uh, equivalent to, to God in some sense. Really, really God is like all three combined, but Vishnu preserves the universe. He keeps it going. And uh, Shiva is going to destroy the universe eventually. And Shiva is all about change. And so then it gets very deep. Like Shiva is about change and creativity and, and so on. And Vishnu is about, uh, is very, very wise. And, and uh, Vishnu would, much like the story of Jesus, Vishnu would, would go in human form occasionally. These were called avatars. So like, Krishna is an example of an avatar of, of Vishnu. And, and like when the world needs some big thing to happen to change it, he Vishnu turns into a human and 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 goes down to earth. Gotcha. So 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 it's a lot more philosophical that way. Yeah, but uh but just like Christianity, just a Greek mythology is also very uh very philosophical. Like the story of uh you know, Prometheus. So the story of Prometheus is so Prometheus was uh he could see the future. He was a Titan and he could see the future. Right. And he told his brother, listen, so his brother's name was Epimetheus. And again, I'm just remembering this from when I was six years old. <laughs> six years old. But Epimetheus had a special power. He could see the past. He could know he knows everything about the past. But Prometheus had a better power, which he knows everything about the future. So Prometheus said to Epimetheus, listen. This Titan thing seems like a great deal right now, but it's not going to work out for the Titans. So just let's hide for a little bit. So when Zeus killed all the Titans, Prometheus and Epimetheus kind of took off and did their own thing. But Prometheus eventually, he, you know, he was very sympathetic to humans. He liked humans. He thought humans would eventually rule the earth, you know, instead of just being like another animal. And so he wanted to... Um, he wanted to give them a special present. And so he gave them fire. He taught them how to use fire. And when Zeus, and he also taught them what it was like to eat food from that the gods would eat. So the humans wanted to show their new special talents to the gods. And so they cooked a meal using, you know, using fire and using food mm -hmm. from Mount Olympus where the gods live. They cooked a meal for Zeus and the other main gods and Zeus was like what the hell where did you learn about this fire stuff we didn't teach you this and they were like well Prometheus taught us so Zeus punished Prometheus he tied Prometheus to a mountain and all all day long a vulture comes to Prometheus and eats his heart out and then at night the heart because Prometheus is immortal at night the heart regrows and then in the morning, the vulture comes again and eats his heart out. And, and that's for, for the rest of Prometheus's days. So basically, the gods want to oppress human. 
And right, then Prometheus but, but, but tried there's a, to. But there's a deeper point too, which is that you know, there's that saying, "Don't play with fire." Like, God, you know, it's too powerful. Don't forget, humans are the first species. There's like a mil- millions of species on Earth, right? But humans are the first and only species that can, with a single stick, can destroy an entire forest. So they they made technology. That's like the fire is like the first scalable technology in that, you know, if an elephant can't burn down the whole fire forest, like an elephant has to kind of like knock down one tree at a time and kill right. one animal at a time. They just have to, they, they have to go find something to stomp on and they stomp on it and then it's gone. It's not scalable, but humans made the first scalable tool, which is basically a stick of fire. Cause with that, you could, you could burn down a whole forest and kill everything in it with just like a single stick of fire. So it was very so, dangerous. And so you have to be very careful how, how you use fire, both symbolically, you know, what fire, uh, you know, dangerous right. things and, and fire itself. So it was really kind of like a moral lesson that, you know, uh, Zeus is basically saying, don't try to get too powerful, which is why like even, you know, even Oppenheimer, when he, when he made the nuclear bomb, which is much more scalable than fire. What was that expression he said? Um, What's it the, about the chain reactions, right? No, now I become death, the destroyer of worlds. That's what he said the first time they exploded an atomic bomb as as an experiment to see if it would work. He said, "Now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds." And I believe he's quoting Krishna from the Bhagavad Gita, uh, and yep. Krishna, of course, is Vishnu. So right. again, these there's all sorts of like deeper moral lessons. But anyway, that was you're talking about the power of obsession. Yeah. What obsession does is, is it makes you over and over and over again, think about the same thing. And so when we're growing, basically most of this happens from the ages of six to like 25, which is why they theorize maybe memory starts to decline after, you know, starting from your early to mid thirties. What did I say? Memory starts to decline. Uh, And it's because when you think about something over and over again, Okay, you you have these connections between neurons. I think they're what are they called? Synapses or whatever. But um, what this this other substance called myelin forms around the connections between, that you form between the neurons. So it it it, may, it turns like a road into a superhighway, so that information can go back and forth much faster. And so the things that you really remember well are when you obsess on something, you build more and more myelin around these synapses, and um, and so that's why obsession, uh, greatly, greatly increases your memory. Now, when you get older, you don't, you, st- people used to think you had no more myelin left to build these con- strong connections after the age of 25. That's not true anymore. That neuroplasticity, the ability to kind of grow your brain still continues. It's just not as powerful. So when you're obsessed with something now, it's harder to, to form memories around it. But when you're a kid and you don't have a lot of memories yet, you have all this myelin that kind of, that's why you're, you you know, what you're exposed to when you're young is very important. So I'll tell you, like when I was six, I was obsessed with mythology and also obsessed with the new Testament, which as a Jewish person didn't make me, the, <laughs> the, the parents didn't want their kids to hang out with me because I was talking about Jesus all the time to my Jewish friends. So I, I literally would like parents would call my mom 
and say, get your dirty son away from my kid. <laughs> and, you know, it, you know, every, everybody but, dislikes everyone else. That's what we, that's what you realize. But, but um, isn't New Testament is sort of mythology as well, right? So that's why it's, well, so it's still Old Testament. The, yeah, so it's still fall under the the whole mythology, like Greek mythology and type of like the category, right? That's yeah, because if you think about it, it, yes, one thing about Judeo Christian Islam religions is there's only one God, right? It's it's a right. supposedly a monotheistic religion, but if you look at the personality of God between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's very different. I mean, God yeah. in the Old Testament punishes people and gets angry at people, right? So, so uh, Moses allowed for uh, you know idols to be created when he didn't allow this, but it, it happened. He didn't man he didn't manage his team well, and when he was off getting the Ten Commandments, they they built um, what was it, the golden um, calf or something. Um, golden plate but from what i know from monty python it was supposed to be 15 commandments right and then the, he dropped one plate and became 10 commandment <laughs> yeah right uh <laughs> so yeah so he comes down from mount sinai and all the hebrews had created this golden calf like to worship and so Mo that moses did drop the first version of the 10 commandments he had to go back up the mountain and get second version but as his punishment, God was really pissed off. And God said, you know, you're never going to, you're going to get to Israel. You'll see it, but you're never going to enter it. And, uh, yeah. uh, that was his, his punishment. And God also, you know, was a little, uh, upset at, at humans during the time of Noah. So he said to Noah, listen, I'm going to keep you and your family alive and all the animals, but the rest of these humans can go to hell for all I care. So, and that's when he flooded the world and there was Noah's Ark. Right. By the way, there's similar floods in other religions like Hinduism and Greek mythology and, and so on. Right. And so... And also, didn't he kill like someone's son? Was it uh, Aaron or Isaac's sons? Yeah, so uh, uh, Abraham had a nephew, Lot, hmm. and uh, he, didn't, he didn't kill Lot, but he killed Lot's wife because they were hanging out in Sodom and Gomorrah. And hmm. so... And, and, when he told Abraham, look, get them out of there because I'm going to burn those places to the ground. They're so disgusting. I'm going to burn them down. And um, Lot's wife, and, and, and God said specifically, when you're leaving Sodom and Gomorrah, do not look back. And Lot's wife was curious what was happening. And maybe she missed a little bit of that Sodom and Gomorrah partying that she was doing. She looks back and she instantly turned into a pillar of salt and, and died. And so, um, so, so, so in the old Testament, not always, but some of it, he was maybe a little bit of an angrier God. Uh, hmm. and in the new Testament, I, I, Jesus has more of a message of love and right. God sort of changes. So it's, there's not, God doesn't have like one personality, like, you know, Adam and Eve, story of Adam and Eve. Yes. God created these great things and gave them great things in, in, in the garden of Eden. But when they broke the rules, he punished them. When Cain and Abel, when Cain killed Abel, he punished Cain. Now, I'm not saying he doesn't punish in the New Testament. There's the Christianity believes in the notion of sin, but you know, it's God has different personalities in the Bible depending on where where you're reading. Uh, and so, anyway, but it, but it's just like how all these gods around that time, you know, 
the new the the Old Testament is based on stories that happen in two thousand BC, fifteen hundred BC, and uh, like you know from th- from a thousand BC to like four hundred BC. There's like these different sections, and so it's written over a long period of time. And, uh, and there are different writers for different sections that, you know, we don't know for sure, but that's the likely theory. And, uh, so God's personality changes throughout. And it's, it's interesting studying these things almost from a literary perspective, whether you believe in religion or not, it doesn't matter. Even if you believe in it, it's interesting to study these, the, the different parts of the Bible from a literary point of view, like how people wrote the way they wrote back then and how they told stories and so on. But anyway, I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now by hosting and, and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there. And it's an e- it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I remember last year I was asked to go speak at the Norway Business Summit, and I was so excited because side by side with the Business Summit was the Norway Chess Summit, where I would get to see in person Magnus Carlsen, the best chess player ever, playing chess. But it was four plane rides, like to get to the city that ultimately I would go to. So I really did not want to fly for 14 hours. And they, they were willing to pay for everything for me. So I, I, at first class. So I didn't want to fly for 14 hours and not be first class. So I had to hurry up and get on the phone immediately to get those first class tickets to a chess tournament in Norway. And listen, this is just like when, you know, you have to know when you want the best of anything, you have to act quickly or someone else will get it instead. And I did not want those seats to fill up. So it's like if you're hiring for your business, you want to find the most talented people for your open roles before the competition scoops them up. I was just talking to a friend this morning where he was trying to decide between some programmers and he waited a little too long and both the programmers he was interviewing took other jobs, like great jobs. So, you know, what's the best way then to hire the best as quickly as possible? ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds qualified candidates fast. And right now you could try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Just try it and see. You'll, you'll find out. So ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology takes center stage to identify the top talent for your roles. 
immediately after you post your job, ZipRecruiter's smart technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I know this because one time I signed up as an employee, potential employee on ZipRecruiter, and I got nonstop, really, I was, even though obviously I wasn't looking for a job, I love what I do, but I just wanted to see what would happen because they were a, a, a sponsor of my podcast. And the most interesting jobs would pop up in my emails like, hey, you're qualified for this or that. And so it's interesting to see. So just just go there and try it. Try ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Amp up your hiring performance. Now, this is more for if you're hiring, but amp up your hiring performance with ZipRecruiter and find the best fast. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address right now to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. So the power of, we're talking about the power of options, right? So you remember all this because of your obsessions with the mythology and, and the Old Testament, New Testament. I'm just talking about one part of your obsessions, right? Because you have a tons of other obsessions. Yeah, that was just one year. And all that stuff. If you name yeah, me but, any year between the age of six and the age of 55, I could tell you my obsession. And right, sometimes 12. they lasted a year. Sometimes they lasted more than one year. It just depends. All right. Uh, age 12. Age 12, I was obsessed, obsessed with politics. So here's, and, and I didn't know the issues. Like you're only 12 years old. I, knew, I don't know. So I was 12 in 1980. So in the 1980, uh, uh, in 1980, it was Jimmy Carter, who was the president at that time, versus Ronald Reagan. And uh, of course, Ronald Reagan won. And Jimmy Carter was a one-term president. And... I didn't know anything about the issues. I didn't know what Reagan stood for. I didn't know what Jimmy Carter stood for. I didn't care. I was, I was just interested in the game-like aspects of politics. Like, what is an election? What do people have to do to win an election? What are all these personalities? Like, you know, it was just fascinating to me. Oh, John F. Kennedy was assassinated. Robert F. Kennedy was assassinated. Like, all these conspiracies. But when I say I was obsessed, like, I got the list of so I, I called up the Federal Elections Commission and they, I, I, I got the list. It was a printout of all the people who were running for president. And that's when I realized there's more than just the people you see in debates running for president. There are hundreds of people running for president. Like if you go to ballotpedia.com right now, you can see all the people who are running for president for, for including 20, James 24, including my name on there because it only <laughs> takes a few minutes to start running. Um, but so then what I would do is I would call I would, I would skip school. Like I would basically, um, I would leave for the school. Okay. And then I would go into my backyard and hide like basically next to the chimney or whatever. And I would wait until I heard the garage door open twice. So both my parents went off to work and then I'd go back into the house and I would spend the whole day calling up presidential candidates and interviewing them. And if you say I should pick up, huh? Do they actually pick up? Well, I would call their office and I would say, oh, I'm, I'm writing for the, this local newspaper. Can I interview you? And, I will, and this local newspaper did pay me 
at one point to publish the interviews. If you search South Brunswick Central Post and James Altucher, you, you'll see me as a 12-year-old and all my interviews. So I interviewed all these presidential candidates. I interviewed uh, the minority leader of the House, who later became the Speaker of the House. Uh, I interviewed, oh, I interviewed the chief usher of the White House. He's like the oh chief butler of the White House. His name was Rex Scouten. And on my birthday, Rex Scouten, who later became the official historian of the White House, Rex Scouten invited me and my dad on my birthday to come have like a private tour of the White House that he gave us. And so we went like to all the private areas of the White House on this on this tour. And um, I went to the Democratic National Convention that year uh, and hung out on the convention floor. Uh, it was in New York City, so it was easy for me to get to. And I, I flew to Mississippi because you, Jimmy, Jimmy Carter, even though he was president, there were, he had one, well, he had two people who were trying to fight him in the primaries. Joe Biden has nobody fighting him in the primaries, really, because RFK right. Jr. became an independent. But Teddy Kennedy was fighting Jim, Jimmy Carter in the primaries. And also this one unknown guy, Clifford Finch, who was the governor of Mississippi, was up against Jimmy Carter. And of course, he lost disastrously. But I flew to Mississippi. Uh, Clifford Finch's campaign paid for it. And I stayed with his campaign manager. I flew to Mississippi for a week to interview him. I was 12 years old. And he made me an honorary colonel of Mississippi. And they all got a kick out of this 12-year-old, like, being obsessed with, I was giving him advice on how he should campaign and how he should make speeches and everything. And I was trying to like come up with speech ideas for him. And, uh, Wait, did they actually take some of the idea or they just like, Oh, this is good. And then they just like, yeah, I think they leave. just said, Oh, this is good. Uh, and you know, he, he, he was, uh, he was nice for, for doing that. I don't, I think maybe he thought my dad was rich or something, which my dad most certainly was not. And, I think they thought they were just going to raise money from my dad if they treated me nice. And so, right. but, uh, uh, you know, all, you know, it was, it was, I had a lot of adventures, put it that way. Like you, you always want to have obsessions that lead to adventures. And so when I was 12, I was a little more mobile than when I was six, not that much more, but a little more. And, but I was just obsessed with politics. It's what I would do all day long. Like I would think about it in school or I would skip school. And I was constantly calling up, like I, I interviewed Senator Bill Bradley. I interviewed tons of senators, congressmen, mayors, you know, all sorts of politicians. And I would tell my parents I wasn't doing any of this stuff. And then they get the phone bill. And people who are old enough will remember, phone bills were, it was really expensive to call outside of your town. Like if you made a right. long distance call, which was anywhere like could be just a few miles away, you start getting charged. And just think inflation's up about five times since then. So like a dollar then would is like $5 now. So my parents would get these phone bills of $600 a month. So that's like $3,000 a month in today's dollars. But like salaries were, were like, I don't know, my parents made like $40,000, you know, they made like nothing. And, and I was costing $3,000 a month just on my um, phone bills. So they would just be screaming me all the time. And I said, I promise I'll stop. I promise I'll stop. And I was just not able to stop. That's crazy. Yeah. Wait, so and, and, and again, like anything I know about politics and presidential history, most of it comes from that year. Like I read every biography of every president. I read about all the big elections. 
you know, that were infamous, like 1876 or uh, 1824 with John Quincy Adams, or of course, George Washington and John Adams and Aaron Burr. And then all the way up to like Roosevelt versus Hoover. And just, I was, you know, there was this guy, uh, Theodore White, who wrote really great election books. They're not really popular now, but they were the election books about 1960, 1964, 1968. And then Hunter S. Thompson, it's the first time, I was totally the first time I read Hunter S. Thompson. He wrote a book, mm -hmm. Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail in 1972, uh, really crazy book. So I just read tons of stuff about politics, uh, but more from like an election and, and personality point of view. I didn't know anything about issues at all. You know what amazed me the most is like you're 12 years old and your, your parents are like, yeah, let's go to Mississippi by yourself. That was the first time I ever flew in a plane. And I was, and I couldn't believe it. Like I get out of the plane and I'm like, wow, this is a different, it looks the same, but it's different. It's like Mississippi. But just you alone, right? Not your parents with you. Right. And then I was hanging out in the campaign headquarters every day and, uh, you know, everything's different now. Everything's more blended. But I remember one guy said to me, I never met a Jew before. <laughs> And this is no offense to anybody. It, this doesn't happen in Mississippi anymore. I've been to Mississippi since, and it's, you know, like every other state. And then another guy said, oh, what's your initials? And I said, J-A. And, and he's like, jackass. And, like, they were just, they, they were just years different. Old. So, but I, I didn't mind. And then I would hang out with the governor all day uh, talking about his campaign. All right. What about, okay, what about, okay, so what about 18 years old? We jumped six years ahead. Uh, 18 years old, chess. <laughs> I oh, so you started chess at 18? Uh, yeah, well, I started at 17, and but it continued. Uh, 18, 18, I was New Jersey junior chess champion. And, I mean, I was obsessed with it. That's what I did all day. Again, I would skip class and skip school, and I'd go into the Manhattan Chess Club. and uh, uh, But every day, like 10 hours a day, I was... That's how I got good at chess, was just... A lot of kids start young, so I had to catch up. And I started basically when I was 17. And by the time I was 18, I was the strongest, you know, junior or, or kid in, in the state. And, uh, you know, I wish, I wish I had either started younger or kept going. Like my problem is I would just get obsessed with something for a year or two, and then I'd move on and, and do something else. But, but chess was a good obsession for me. My parents were really worried because before that, I was obsessed with breakdancing. Like all I was interested in was be, being a good breakdancer. Wait, so how old were you? I was like 15 and I had gone to this exchange program where I, you know, I, I got to go to London for a summer and I completely skipped all the activities of the program that I was in. And I hung out in, I guess, what would be considered kind of like a ghetto. And I paid this other kid like $20 to show me how to break dance. And like, so for the whole summer, I hung out with these kids who were, were just break dancing all the time. And so I got obsessed even when I got back to the US. And that's all I would do was practice. And I'd watch, there were just a couple of movies. One was called Break It, another was called Beat Street. And, you know, occasionally there was some break dancing on MTV. But uh, uh, I was just obsessed with it, and that's all I would do. Well, let me ask but, you. But my parents did not like this obsession. They thought it was not a good obsession for me. I mean, you're Jewish, so. Have yeah, you seen they, any they other Jewish know, They just didn't know. They, they were thinking, 
like like many parents, they were thinking, well, what's going to get this guy into college? Right. And it's probably not breakdancing. So they were much happier with chess. If you if you're good at breakdancing right now, I'm pretty sure you can get into any college. That's probably true. It's a, it's unique enough, and it's also it wasn't really considered like an art form then, and now it's right. It really is a beautiful style of dance, which combines so many other styles. You know, this is why hip hop and breakdancing has really flourished. I mean, these guys, you know, a lot of musicians in that space make hundreds of millions of dollars. Probably, probably the only area of music as popular as hip hop is, you know, like country western. If a friend asks how you're doing and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. Save big money on everything for your projects. Now at Menards. We have it all for garden and landscaping essentials. Visit our outdoor garden center today and update your backyard space. Grid accents lattice panels have a timeless design with an innovative design that's simple to install and requires almost no maintenance. Save big on lattice panel options at Menards. View our entire selection of garden center products today on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. Okay, so let me ask you this. The power of obsessions. By, by the way, this is, what, this is why when I was older and starting my first business, I did all the websites of all the rap labels and I did the website for the Source magazine, which is like the premier magazine in the space because I knew all this stuff. I knew everything. See, that I was about to ask you that. Did any of the obsessions lead into anything later in life? Like let's say the first one, the mythologist, right? I assume, I assume it will lead into your writing. Yeah, like... When you, when you are essentially, when you're interested in mythology, you become a student of storytelling because you notice how all the stories are the same with little twists. And, you know, like I, I read the Bible like front to back just to, just cause I loved it. Not because I was a uh, uh, religious or had a faith or anything. I just loved the stories. I read all about Greek mythology cause I love the stories. And, you know, I think I got interested in it because I, I remember one time there was a, a Superboy comic book that had Apollo in it. And then there were comic books like Thor and there were comic books like Shazam, which referenced the Greek gods and Thor was the Norse god. And uh, and then of course I got those uh, Indian comics. And so it was all like linked to me. Like I loved comic books too. So, and that's kind of like an American mythology in some sense. And uh, so, but it, but yeah, the the art of storytelling is all intertwined with mythology. A myth is a story, and you know, and my in politics, there was just one year where I was really obsessed with it. But ever after, I know a lot about how what happens in elections in the U.S. And so each time there's an election, I kind of have a running start knowing what is going on behind the scenes like right but at the same time you also like 
interview so you interview people you interview the politician before so like that's also sort of just start of sort of interviewing podcasting type of thing right oh yeah absolutely i mean i would all day long be calling people and interviewing but my interview you know i had the interview style of a 12 year old oh do you like being a senator <laughs> you know you know for bill bradley did you also like what do you like more being a senator or a basketball player <laughs> and you know, I didn't ask anything about issues. I had no concept of issues. That was above my head. So, uh, and even now, but I, get, I guess what it gave me was is that I still don't really believe in issues. I, I got such a sense back then that it was a game and you won by playing the game with a good strategy. So I never trust any politician on what they claim are their issues. Now, that's unfair to politicians. I think some politicians really do care about their issues, but I think most are, are ruled more by ambition than a care of issues. Uh, and by that, I mean, they're, they'll, they'll not always, but par in part, take on an issue if it polls well. And the one time, so in 20, I think it was 2014, I wanted to run for Congress and there was a major presidential candidate who wanted to support me. And, uh, I remember him saying though that I had to hire his pollster so I could see what issues I should talk about that are popular in the district. And I said, I had my own issues already. I don't need a pollster. But that really underlined the, the thing that I kind of intuitively grasped when I was 12 years old. It turned out to be really true that the pollsters are the ones who tell you what issues, you know, a, a pollster is someone who takes polls. They're the ones who tell you what issues to talk about, and uh, uh, and look, it's 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 part of the game. So I still think of politics as all a giant game. I mean, it is right because like how often the policy actually change. Yeah, like it, it it doesn't change that often. And not only that, look, they all know what to say in their speeches, and then they then they make these promises, and they rarely follow up on the promises. So like. For instance, I'll just take a quick example because on a another meeting I was on today, we were talking about uh, marijuana stocks and Joe Biden said he was going to make marijuana legal as the first thing he did as president. Of course, he never talked about it again. So, yeah. um, nor has he really changed immigration policy or anything. So very few things get changed from president to president. That's a, another thing I, I realized, but it was fascinating. Like, you know, again, back when I was 12, we, we had, you know, 19, just six years earlier, Richard Nixon had resigned in like the biggest scandal in presidential history, you know, except for maybe Warren G. Harding and the Teapot Dome scandal that we all know about. And uh, again, all this stuff is, I only remember these things from when I was 12, but that's when you're building memories. So I was, I, I, and you build memories the best as a young person by being obsessed with something. It's very hard to be great at something you're not obsessed with. And the reason is obsession is not about love. It's not about passion. It's about you'll, you're so interested in something, you'll do it even if you're not passionate about it, even if you're not motivated. That is the thing about obsession. Obsession is mostly unhealthy. It's like addiction. You, you, you don't want to do heroin every day if you're a heroin addict because eventually you know, the road of a heroin addict is not a pleasant road in the long run. And everyone knows that, but you do it anyway, because you're addicted. 
And so with me, I had a, this weirdly ad- addictive personality, not to drugs or anything, but to these ideas and, and aspects of life, like, you know, mythology or politics, or, you know, when I was 13, 14, I got obsessed with like the occult. So I was, I wanted to get, I wanted to get psychic powers because then maybe I could use my mental powers to get, you know, I was a entering puberty. I wanted to have girls like me. And so maybe my the psychic powers could make me more attractive. And, uh, uh, but then that led to an obsession with meditation. And so like by the time I was 15 or 14, I was really into meditation and got obsessed with it and would meditate like for hours a day. And I knew all the different styles of meditation from Vipassana to Zen to, um, you know, compassion style, Tibetan meditation to more American style, you know, mindfulness and, and so on. So I, I learned every style of meditation and Wait, that, so- hel- that helped me in later in life because then when I, you know, I kind of have this, you know, back, you know, this way of meditating that I developed myself along the years and it's very useful for me. So let me ask you this. I don't know if you can answer it or not because I felt like it's in your bone. It's in your DNA. How to be obsessed with anything? How to be? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. See, that's it why I, I don't know if you can answer it. Yeah. Because I felt like you have the switch in your brain that it just switch on and off automatically. You can't even control it, I felt like. I, I think mostly it's an escape. So for instance, why did I start playing chess again? Well, uh, in August, 2020, as all my listeners by this point know, I wrote this article that had like a lot, millions of people loved it, but my friends and family basically dropped me after this article. And then all the people I knew in New York city, you know, hated me. And I got a little depressed after Seinfeld wrote his full page op-ed against me. And it kind of, I don't know, subconsciously it, it did something like I stopped writing for a while. Well, whenever I had a period like that in my life before, I would just start playing chess until the writing came back. And I just, and then the TV show, the Queen's Gambit came out and suddenly everybody was interested in chess and I was already a chess master. So I became obsessed again with it. And when one obsession begins, another obsession ends. So I stopped doing stand up comedy, which I was, was obsessed with for years before that. Well, yeah. So like what, what makes you obsessed? Were you escaping something that, that you obsessed with uh, stand up comedy? No, I think that was okay. Escape, I think happens about half the time and, and aspirational happens the other time. Meaning mm-hmm. I always really admired people who went up on stage and told jokes. Like I thought it was an incredibly brave thing to do. And I enjoyed public speaking and, and I was very funny all the time whenever, when I gave a talk. So people would always tell me, oh, you should be a comedian. And so I tried it once. This one com- comedy club owner said, hey, do you want to just try going up once? And I said, yes. And I was scared to death and I was horrible, horrible, horrible. But I became so obsessed with getting good. A, I bought half that comedy club from that guy. And, and I've since resold it back to him. I just, I started performing every single night. And for hours every day, I would watch comedy specials to learn, oh, what makes Dave Chappelle great? What makes Chris Rock great? What makes Louis C.K. great? And I would watch, I've watched the specials of hundreds of comedians and because I owned a comedy club, I watched thousands of comedians over the years and, you know, most of them very bad. 
So I think that helped me get pretty good pretty quickly. I'm not going to say I was great because I think it takes a really long time to be great at it, but I was good enough that I can, you know, I would travel around to other cities, even other countries. Uh, I was touring with Tony Woods, who was Dave Chappelle's mentor. So he was a good mentor to me as well in comedy, but I was obsessed. I mean, that's why for a period, my podcast was like all comedians and we had a, a dip in audience because of that. Now I'm not making the same same mistake now. We've hardly had any chess players on. Yeah. Well, so so and but but, com but comedy that obsession helped me in many ways. Like it helped me. First off, my public speaking, which was already pretty good, got ten times better. And and there are so many skills in comedy that are useful for public speaking, but pub the regular public speaker does not have these skills. So you have to be a comedian to kind of acquire the skills but it became so useful for my public speaking. It like 10 X my public speaking. And, um, also it was the first time I owned a physical location, like a bar, a bar slash stage when I owned the comedy club. And so that is useful for, to expand my understanding of business. Something I never was obsessed. I never was obsessed with business, but I'm good at it. But you know, you could be good at things you're not obsessed with, but you know, I, I'm not the greatest. I'm not like the, you know, Warren Buffett of business. Like I'm not anywhere close because I never was truly obsessed with business. I just know a lot about business because of, you know, 25 years experience running businesses. But, uh, right. so all, all these yeah. things do contribute to, to my life. Yeah. So it's interesting. So your, your, your obsessions became a quest and the quest that leads to adventures. Yeah. And like that lead to like interesting stories. Yeah. The first time tell. I went up on stage, uh, at a comedy club, who would know that just a few years later, for instance, as an example, I would be traveled to every major city in the Netherlands performing comedy, like actually right before the week before COVID or that, uh, or that I would have all these experiences with all these comedians. Like I would know all these like well-known famous comedians who were my heroes and ultimately culminating in Jerry Seinfeld trashing me. And, uh, uh, yeah. And so and I think that, that was part of the reason why I dropped comedy also is like, I felt like that world betrayed me a little bit. Oh man, you get, you got, you got betrayed. Yeah. Your, your heart got betrayed. You, yeah. My heart was broken. That you, yeah. Your, your heart was broken by the, the things that you left. And then uh, when you're 12 years old, you got crowned as uh, the, wait, honorary, I can't say the words, the colonel. Yeah. An honorary colonel in uh, Mississippi. Yeah, and also yeah. I became an honorary lieutenant colonel in Alabama, and that's a different story. But many years later, in like 2006, I, the, I wrote about in the Financial Times, I wrote about becoming a colonel in all these states, honorary colonel in all these states. But I said the one state that would not give me an honorary colonelship was Kentucky. So like Kentucky Fried Chicken is Colonel Sanders. He's not, he never was in the army. He was an honorary colonel of Kentucky. Colonel Muhammad Ali, an honorary colonel of Kentucky. Elvis Presley, an honorary colonel of Kentucky. It's really hard to be an honorary colonel of Kentucky. So the governor of Kentucky in 2005 read my article and made me an honorary colonel of Kentucky. So now I'm an honorary colonel of Kentucky. So basically I'm working for a colonel. Do I get a title myself if I work for a colonel? Maybe I can make you a lieutenant colonel. Well, can, can, can I? Can I? Well, we got to start you off at private. <laughs> Private, private, I mean, yeah. And then, then you gotta get well. Okay, you, you've, you've, you've done well. Maybe you're up to like lieutenant now, not lieutenant colonel. So lieutenant. By the way, there was one point I was obsessed with the military. Uh, like maybe when I was like seven or eight, 
Because I was watching, like, if you don't, if you, for for listeners who lived in the U.S. in the seventies, all the shows were like military shows. Like there was, um, you know, I Dream of Jeannie was basically about a, an astronaut slash major in the Air Force, and F Troop was uh, about a bunch of people in a fort in the eighteen hundreds, and they were all military. And there was a whole bunch of like shows that were that had a kind of like a military aspect to it. So I got obsessed with like the military for a short period. But uh, I mean, no matter what rank you give me, I have no idea because I have no idea the rank of military. I don't know if lieutenant is is higher than captain or or no. It goes um well, it goes second lieutenant, lieutenant, uh, captain, uh, major, lieutenant colonel, colonel, brigadier general, uh, lieutenant general, major general, and uh, four star general, and then a five star general, someone like Eisenhower who like commands all the generals when he was in the military. Why can't they just consolidate them a little bit? Like, there's too many titles, too many rank. Uh, I think there's there. I, they have a you know they they have a system to it. I mean, they've been doing this for a long time, and you know the Navy has similar titles, but instead of generals, there are admirals, and um, so there's there, there there's a method to the madness. Right. So this is all to say, like the power of obsession is actually very powerful. That, that leads you to like adventures, leads you to like skills that you probably will. Will lead, will need. Yeah, every obsession I've had has led to some benefits in my life. Now, what some regrets though of that is I wish maybe I had stuck with some of the obsessions for longer than I did. Um, but the good thing about obsession is you could do something for a very short amount of time, and if you're obsessed, you'll quickly be among the best. You might not be the best, but you'll be in the top one percent of what you're uh, obsessed with. So like I got obsessed with computer programming when I was in college, but I, it was, I was already three fourths of the way through college or two thirds of the way through college. And I had never taken a computer science class in my life, but I got obsessed with programming. So I switched my major in the last year to computer science. I'd never taken a course in it. And I took six courses a semester and also over the summer computer science just to catch up. And then I, and I graduated a year early, majored in computer science, then went to grad school for computer science because I was so obsessed. I got, I was able to catch up. You're able to catch up much faster with the power of obsession, which happened to me in chess too. I didn't start till I was 17. So other kids would start when they're four years old or whatever. So, uh, uh, but now you asked an important question, which I've been thinking about a little more as we're talking, which is how do you get obsessed with something? And I think the key is, you got to try you got to read a lot and you got to try a lot of things. So reading gives you ideas of what else is out there, but doing makes you get that dopamine. And you know, I would get dopamine you know, an explosion of dopamine for instance if I was if I was interviewing a a a presidential candidate or a senator or whatever or you know, I would get dopamine when I'd win a game of chess. But like an enormous like an and an outlier amount, like too much. So that would give me this obsession. But you have to you have to actually do things to see how your body feels about it. And that's how you get obsessed. If the body feels good, you'll do it more and more. So that's why some people get obsessed slash addicted to drugs. Some people get obsessed slash, like I loved the flow state I would get into when I was programming a computer. And I essentially put in my 10,000 hours very quickly. I would love the flow state I would get into when writing. 
So I, when I got obsessed with writing, and usually there's some reason, like this girl I had a crush on liked a guy who was a writer. And so I said to myself, I'm going to be a writer. And then I started writing. And, but then I got obsessed and I would read all, I mean, instead of going to classes, I would go to the library and just read like literary criticism and read books. And, and then I would go home and write, I'd write three or 4,000 words a day for years and years and years, like for 20 years, basically. I mean, the obsessive part probably lasted five years, but then I was simply good at it and still getting better because I was writing for, for money then. And, uh, and I kept doing it. Cool. So I would say That's the way a- you get obsessed is leave yourself open to it. Like expose yourself to a lot of different things. And that could be through reading or watching or, or whatever. And then, and then actually doing those things. So like having an experience, like go, like it's one thing to watch a lot of comedy. It's another thing to go up on stage and do comedy. Now it's fine if you're obsessed with watching comedy and being like a critic, say, or a reviewer of comedians or an interviewer of comedians. That's fine too. It's a different kind of obsession. I was obsessed with doing it. I was obsessed with doing meditation or interviewing politicians or, you know, I didn't, I didn't really do anything with Greek mythology. Like I wasn't, I didn't learn Greek or anything, but I was six years old. So all I could do was read and talk about it. And I would, I would drive my parents crazy because here I was a six year old kid. We'd go to like visit other families, you know, like families do, we'd get together with my parents' friends and they would have kids. And my parents would always have to warn me like on the car ride over, don't talk about Zeus to the other six-year-olds there. I mean, I wish you would talk. I mean, I, I love mythology stuff. I wish you have talked. I wish I would have known you since then, but then that would be too old right now. So, yeah. well, we could talk about Zeus now, but it's not as, it's not as interesting. Um, yeah. But yeah, so I think, uh, I think obsession is important. And no matter what it is you're obsessed with, unless it's like a drug like heroin, um, it will it will benefit your life in some way. Like you you will learn things that will be so deeply ingrained in you, you won't even know. Like just because I don't do comedy now doesn't mean like every single time I give a public talk or or in many other cases, you, there are skills you learn from that that you're able to apply that you don't even realize you're applying. Or even the stuff I learned when I was six or 12 or 15 or 17 or, you know, even I'm sure there's things even from breakdancing that I still apply today in life. So that's the episodes for today. Uh, I think these are great episodes. Good, good. Uh, a good interview, Jay. You you were a good interviewer. Thank you. The power of obsession. Thank you. The only, okay, we'll, we'll keep this in the recording because I'm going to analyze this podcast. I didn't realize we were kind of getting into a podcast, so... I feel like my voice was low energy in the very beginning, but um, uh, in the intro, I'll, I'll, I'll that we'll do it after we finish this but, episode. But, I'll explain that. Th- but that's more real, though. Like we want the real James. We want real. Like look at the uh, the reality TV. Everyone just wants something real right now. Yeah, but reality TV is so. There was a period where I was obsessed with pitching a reality TV <laughs> show. Uh, reality TV is scripted. <laughs> People don't, some people know that, but many people don't know that. Yeah, it's just like WWE, right? Or WWF, the wrestling. It, well, it's like, okay, you know, we were on a meeting earlier for talking to a potential advert, the big advertiser for the podcast. And I mentioned the TV show House Hunters. So if you don't know what House Hunters is, I'll just describe real quickly. 
It's the most popular TV show in the world. 25 million people a month watch it and it's syndicated in like 50 different countries. It's it's on HDTV. It's basically a couple. Here's the format. A couple looks at an expensive house, a cheap house, and a house in the middle, and they decide what house to buy. So that's the whole format. That's the whole description. It's this, and my TV agent like six years ago explained to me this show and, and he was trying to convince me that to do simple formats. And I, I got the point, but, but the whole thing is, is that the way I describe it, it makes it seem like, Oh, first they're going to look at this expensive house that they never saw before. Then they're going to look at this cheap house that they never saw before. Then this middle uh, cost house that they've never seen before. And then they're going to make a decision all within the chronology of the show. But even a show like that is scripted because it is a real couple, but the house that they choose at the end, they had already bought that house when they, or they were in escrow. They were already in escrow on the house when the, the producers of the show picked them to be on the show. So they had already decided, but they hadn't yet closed the acquisition yet. So the old people were still living in the old, in the house. So, but they were in escrow to buy the house. So they had already decided, but then it made the show makes it seems like they decide later. And by the way, the expensive house, they had already looked at it and rejected it. The cheap house, they had already looked at it and rejected it. And the producers would would take a look at all the houses they bought and figure out what uh, all the houses they looked at and figure out which one should be the expensive one and the cheap one. So even such a simple format like that is somewhat scripted. So basically, all the house hunter uh, actor. They're sense. real people who are buying a house. In fact, they right, already right. bought the house that they supposedly decide to buy on the show. But yeah. there's an and and they're they're not real. They're not actors. Like they don't know how to act. But there's an element of storytelling it's not it's not reality let's put it that way it is definitely not there are no reality shows that are actually about reality gotcha all right so that's the power of obsessions yes and look cool i got obsessed with investing and uh that changed my life forever because i got obsessed with you know you see a lot of people working in the investing industry they know about trading stocks or trading metals or real estate investing but because I was obsessed, I had to read I, and do almost every style of investing, day trading, arbitrage, value investing, growth investing, real estate, uh, private investing, venture capital investing, quantitative investing, everything. And uh, uh, I was just obsessed. That's what I did for years and years. So that obsession, of course, has changed my life completely. But anyway, all right, Jay, you're tr doing a good job of trying to wind down this podcast. <laughs> I just keep going because I'm obsessed with all the things I've been obsessed with. And I have so many stories, but we could do this again another time. You know, pick different years and I'll have different obsessions. And I think that should be the series. Yeah. We're just like, we're just like 1988. What's your obsessions? And then just tell the, tell, tell, you know, the whole story about your uh, obsessions. Uh, 1988 was, uh, entrepreneurship and I first got interested in being an entrepreneur in 1988 and uh, I started a like a weird kind of food delivery company kind of like Uber Eats actually I started we we had 10 restaurants no no we had like 20 restaurants and if somebody ordered through our business they would get a big discount we I I arranged that with each restaurant and then I would take all the orders and there was a guy on the football team at, at Cornell Fred and he was a, like an 1800 rated chess player. I was, you know, close to 2200. 
and we would play chess in between orders and then we would we were the delivery people as well but i had to program i didn't know anything about programming i had to program the software for all this and so i went from being obsessed with entrepreneurship for the first time and that's how my computer science obsession started James is supposed to wind down the episode. I know, but you said a year. I had to tell you <laughs> the obsession. That was supposed to be the series. Don't say I, I, any years anymore. <laughs> well, I mentioned the year because that was the year that I was born. So. Oh, well, that was a defining year in my life was the year you were born. Because you were born, exactly. not because of the entrepreneurship <laughs> yes. stuff. So the power of obsession. Thank you very much, Jay, for getting me going. I didn't even think we were doing a podcast and you were secretly recording, which is nasty. And... Uh, and uh, drastic invasion of my privacy, but this is the episode. If a friend asks how you're doing and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. Save big money on everything for your projects. Now at Menards. We have it all for garden and landscaping essentials. Visit our outdoor garden center today and update your backyard space. Grid accents lattice panels have a timeless design with an innovative design that's simple to install and requires almost no maintenance. Save big on lattice panel options at Menards. View our entire selection of garden center products today on Menards.com. Save big.